0: Today we are starting a new series, and before I start, I'm going to make sure I've been bad about my mic. Am I on? Can you all hear me? Is this? Oh, yeah, there we go. If I, just, if I eat it, I can tell. There we go. We are starting a new series for the season of Lent, and uh, you may be aware, as of last Wednesday, we are in the season of Lent, and the season of Lent is the 40 days before Easter Sunday uh, now, if you do the math, you're going to realize it's actually 46. That's because it's 40 days, not counting Sundays. Uh, so if there's a great debate. For those of you who have given something up for Lent, uh, sometimes I get the question, does that mean that I can eat chocolate on Sundays? <laughs> um, I'm going to leave that to your conscience and your own spiritual needs, but, but that's why there's actually 40, it's 40 days, not counting Sunday. And in the early church, uh, everyone, if, those who came to faith in Christ, uh, they, everyone was baptized on Easter Sunday. And so uh, those who were new Christians, the year before their baptism, they would undergo a, a training a, into, and where they would learn the scriptures and learn what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And then it, because in the scriptures there is uh, something about 40 days. You know, there's, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. Um, actually in 40 years, the ark was on the waters for 40 days, or the people of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. That's that's one of those biblical numbers, 40. And so 40 days before Easter, uh, these new people who were going to be baptized, these new Christians, they would undergo an even more intense uh, level of spiritual disciplines to prepare themselves for not only the celebration of Easter, but their own baptism. And as time went on uh, in the church, people began to realize this isn't something just for new Christians to do. This is really something that's good for everyone to do. And so uh, that's how the season of Lent kind of got started. And so it is a season in which we, uh, we engage in uh, some spiritual disciplines in a more intense way than we do normally. And uh, it's a wonder, wonderful, wonderful season. So you'll notice that there are some different things that we are doing in our worship service that we don't normally do. That is because we are in... This season, and uh, for the sermons, I want to talk about what it looks like in a church when the gospel of Jesus Christ really takes hold and sinks in. Because one of the things that strikes me, especially in Paul's letters, and, and take take his letter to the church in Rome as a good example for most of the letter to the church of Rome is this powerful proclamation of what Jesus has done and how God has brought salvation to sinful humanity through the person and the work of Jesus Christ but then at the at the end of his letter Paul doesn't just stop Paul spends a chapter or two chapters talking about what does it look like in the church when, when, this, when the, this good news of what Jesus has done is, is lived out, when, when the, the implications of it really sink in, he gets very practical. You know, we would do this. We will not do this. This is what the life of the people of God will look like. And that just strikes me that there is, when the gospel really sinks in, there are some really particular things that you can, you can notice about a congregation or a denomination or, or what have you. Um that are signs that that the culture of the church and the culture of that congregation is centered in and rooted in the gospel. And so that's what I want to talk about. And as we begin, I want to invite you to say a word of prayer both with me and also for me. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty Father, we thank you. You are a good God. And you are mighty. And it is all because of you that we are able to be here as your people, redeemed and forgiven and made new. And I pray that as we begin this series that you indeed would would speak into our hearts, that you would enlighten our minds and help us to understand in a new way the words which you speak to us. That you wouldn't just enlighten our minds and give us information. That you would, you would do what you do, which is go beyond that and bring transformation through your word. So be with this time. Be with all of us in this season as we, as we seek your face and seek to grow closer to your Son, Christ. We ask, ask all this in his good and perfect name. Amen. What does it look like when the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms the culture of a church. You may not have ever thought about a church having a culture. We think about nations having a culture. We think about maybe regions having a culture, right? Um, one of the things that we may not realize is that churches have a culture. Uh, that churches have, have a way that, that they have assumptions that kind of guide what they do and, and how they live. And, and so the question is, what does it look like in a church where the leadership and where critical mass of the people are taken hold of by a love for reaching people for Jesus Christ, for proclaiming the good news that Christ has died and set us free from slavery to sin and set us free for for, for obedience to Christ. What does that look like? And again, Apostle Paul, he knew what that looked like. And the reason he's able to write about that at the end of Romans is because he's seen it. He had seen it. He, He was a church planter, and Paul, many of the churches that he wrote letters to and visited to, he had actually planted those churches. Some of those churches were planted by Paul's uh, disciples and some of the people who worked with Paul. And he would kind of take them in and, and become their pastor. And, tra- and he saw what it looked like when these churches um, were, were sold out for the gospel that had come in and saved them and transformed them. And so in chapter 15, he, he talks about this. And we see really five things, five marks of a gospel-centered church. And I, I want to, to look at them and go through them during the season because here's, here's why. Isn't this what we want? Amen. Isn't this what we want at Holland Park? Isn't, isn't that what we want is to have a, a, a be, to be a congregation who is radically gospel-centered in everything that we do, and everything that we say, and, and not to be centered around so many of the things. Let me just, let me just, I'm, I'm going to get to this. How many of you, I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but how many of you, be honest, even though we're a church, you can be honest. How many of you have ever had a bad church experience? Oh, that's actually more than I was expecting. Keep, keep those hands up. Wow. Now, hopefully that wasn't here, okay? Okay. Um, <laughs> So uh, we won't make you tell. I, but let me, I, I, I don't know this. I, I could, we could get up and we could tell our stories and there'd be probably be some similarities. There'd be some differences. But here's what I can tell you. The source of your bad church experience almost certainly was because it was a church environment and a church culture which was not shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ but shaped by something else. Something else can vary. Sometimes it can be you've got a power block, and really the heart of that church is they want to control things and do you know, whatever it may be, but, it's not, shaped by the, but they're not, it's not shaped by a great love for Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, but shaped by something else. But what, what I want for my life, when my days are done, I want the Lord of all creation to look down, to, to, to look at my life and say, Well done. You you were a sinner redeemed by my grace, but you allowed that grace to seep into your heart and soul and you were obedient, well done, good and faithful servant. And when the story of this congregation is done, don't you want it to be said that we, we were so enraptured by the gospel that the culture of this congregation was shaped by Jesus and what he's done. If that was the word, the last word spoken about Highland Park, that's, how wonderful would that be? Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. I want it true for me, and I want it true for Highland Park. So, once again, let's look at Paul's description. This is from Romans. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Romans chapter 15, And we're to pick up in verse 1. This is his description of a gospel-centered church. And he words this like an encouragement. He's saying, church in Rome, this is what a gospel-centered church looks like. I want you to put this into practice. So let's just read. We read through it before. Let's read through it again. Here we go. Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. By the way, I don't think he he means we who are strong and and that we're the good ones, we're the righteous ones. I think what what he's saying is we're the ones who have been upheld and strengthened by God's grace. He's glorifying God in this. Uh, We we, we who have heard the gospel and responded, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, he's talking about the scriptures, and particularly the Old Testament, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Today, so in in that we can see the five marks that Paul Uh, proclaims about a gospel-centered church. And today, we're going to look at the very first one. Um, And it's again, this is where I got ahead of myself. If you had a bad church experience, it was because that culture was not healthy, and it was due more specifically to what? Selfishness. Selfishness. That was what was going on. Selfishness is... It was because of whatever... I'll be willing to bet that what caused your bad church experience was because of pride, because of self-centeredness. And it was present in that church or in some of the people in that church. Again, I hope it wasn't this one. I'm assuming it wasn't because you're still here, okay? <laughs> um, and you know the, what the problem is with, with pride and the problem, the problem with selfishness and the problem with self-centeredness is it's one of those things that's almost impossible to see in the mirror, Right? And if, I, if I'm being driven by selfishness and if I've got selfishness in my heart and it's, it's, it's controlling my decisions and what I do and what I say, uh, you can see that in me really, really clearly. But it's almost impossible for us to see in ourselves. right? That's, that's the problem. Uh, and, and so what we need really is an outside force to come in and heal us of our selfishness because more often than not, we just don't see it in ourselves. I'll give you an example. We'll take, this, is, this is sort of the classic example of the bad church experience, right? And, and I might even have you raise your hands again. So the classic one is this. You are a guest at some church. Maybe you have moved into a new community, and you are seeking a church home, and, and so you, you come to a church. Maybe you found it in the old days. You would have found it in the Yellow Pages, right? Nowadays, you go and you go to Google, and you Google you know, Methodist church, hopefully, uh, and you, you find the church, but you, you pull in, and there's always, even if you are an extrovert, not, there's always that anxiety when you come to a new church, and you're anxious because you, you don't know where to park, and you don't know where the doors are, and if you've got kids, you're not sure where the nursery is, so you've got all that anxiety, and but you fight through all that, and, and, and you finally make your way to the worship center, and maybe you get there early because you're type A, and you want to make sure, you know, and so you, you, you get in your seat, and you're just kind of like, oh, you know, and some member of the congregation comes in, and you know what happens, right? They walk, I, I'm, they walk up to you and they smile and they say, You're in my pew. <laughs> How many of you that's happened to you? Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I tell the, years ago, I was a guest preacher at my grandmother's church in Tupelo, Mississippi, and that happened to me. <laughs> but I had, I had fun because, like, you know, halfway in the sermon, some, some nice little old member made me get up and move out of the pew. And then I got up and got to preach a sermon. And I just looked at her face and she was, <laughs> know, she was kind of doing that. So, um, It's a bad experience, isn't it? Now, when that happened to you, see, it's easy to look at that person and say, you know, you're just being selfish. But you know what? I'll bet you that person wasn't thinking that. I'll bet you they, they didn't walk in that worship center. They didn't look at someone sitting in their pew and, and say, you know what? I'm just going to be selfish today. What do you think they were thinking? I've been a member of this church for 40 years. Who does he think he is sitting in my... Doesn't he know? It's my spot. And when you've been here for 40 years, you can pick your pew. You know, or or something. You know, They should know better. We, we always have our justifications, don't we? It's a slight at that point because selfishness is impossible to see in the mirror, and and as much as I love I, I love it if we had the agency as fallen human beings to be able to say you know what I'm selfish and I need to change that. But more often than not, it doesn't happen because we don't see it in ourselves. So it's just, it, here's here's the solution that that kind of, of illness and it really is an illness in it because that will rot away a congregation. That'll make sure you never have any guests come back, right? The cure for that is for an outside force to come in and to transform the hearts of the people. For an outside, for something, for something greater and even more powerful than our self-centeredness and our pride and our sense of obligation, our, our sense of not of a, of a, you know what we're owed rather. Something more powerful than that has to come in and clean it out. That something is the gospel. That something is the gospel, right? So the first mark of a gospel-centered church is that it is radically outward-focused. The first mark of a gospel-centered church is that it it has been redeemed of all selfishness. It's been redeemed. We have this, as fallen human beings, we have this tendency, everything just tends to turn inward. My rights, it's I'm owed, I need, I want, I, me, I, you you know what that feels like, right? The first mark of a gospel-centered church is the gospel has so transformed our hearts and our lives that 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 bending inward begins to twist and it turns outward and the first so the first mark of a gospel-centered church is they don't say we want we need we're owed it begins to turn to they need they need they want how it's it's concerned with the other and it may be the others in the church with you it may be in the others in the community around the church but the concern twists from us, me, I, to what does the community need? That's the mark of a gospel-centered church. Here's what how Paul puts it. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to, say it with me, please ourselves. He goes on. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to... Build him up. Notice, notice the direction? It's all about direction. It's not, he doesn't say, so this is, this is how we normally operate. So let each one of us please ourselves for our good to build ourselves up. That's sort of our default mode, isn't it? And that's the default mode of congregations that have not allowed themselves to be radically transformed by the gospel. And I don't need to prove that to you. You've seen it. You've seen it, haven't you? But I'll bet you you've also seen congregations. And there's, Have you ever been in a congregation and they just kind of have it? They have it and you can sense there's something different. And sometimes we, we mistake what, that, what the it thing is. Sometimes we think, oh, it's because they're big. It's because they have a crowd. It's because their facilities are nice. It's because they're in the right part of town. But you know what I found? I've seen congregations that are huge, and they've got a nice gym or whatever it may be, and they have it. And I've seen churches that meet in someone's garage. And it's 12 people. But you know what? They have it. They have it. And I'm not a, I'm not a wealthy church consultant, and I don't have a PhD in this, but you know what I think? You know what it is? It's the churches that are gospel-centered. And the gospel has transformed their life and their life together. And their hearts. And, and you feel it. Because the spirit is moving. And people. They, they are outward focused. And people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And lives are being transformed. And marriages are being restored. And addictions are being healed. And brokenness is being. You feel it. And it's not us. And it's not the buildings. And it's not the preaching. It's the gospel. Which has transformed the congregation. That's what it. Is. That's what it is. And Paul says it begins, the first step, is is, there is an outward focus. An outward focus. We're concerned about our neighbor, about our community. We're concerned about the people who live next door to us who do not yet know Jesus. It is, as, as someone once put, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread and where to find life. That's the gospel. And that's what it is. That's the first mark of a gospel-centered church. Now, um, and and here's why. Here's why. Here's why a church that focuses on the gospel and has come to to allow the gospel to transform its heart, they can't help but to do this. It's because that's what Christ has done for us. Verse 3. For Christ, say it with me, did not please himself. himself. And if anyone had the right to please themselves and to come in and say, me, 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 it's all about me. It was Jesus because he's the Lord and creator of all that exists. He alone has the right to make everything about him, but he didn't do it. Paul says he did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus didn't come and say, it's all about me. He came and he took on the form of a servant and he served and he gave of himself even unto death that we might be redeemed and forgiven and made new. He focused not on his needs but on the needs of others. Now, when so you know, you can just it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that when this comes in and takes over a church, how it begins to one of the, it transforms one of the most form, one of the most common ways selfishness begins to take root in a church, and that's judgmentalism. I bet you many of your bad church experiences were because you experienced judgmentalism. But you know what? You can't grow in holiness and in holier than thouness at the same time. So a church that makes its main thing the gospel, right? You can tell because when when a co- that congregation is faced with sin, it doesn't crack the whip, you know, and 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 crack the whip of the law and say, shame, 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 shame. A church, a gospel-centered church, when confronted with sin, says, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. It's a whole different atmosphere. And and that, that congregation does everything to see the grace of the gospel come to bear and to heal. And it works this way individually. The most gracious people that you know are the people who have had an experience of the radical grace of Jesus Christ. And they fixate on that grace. The least gracious people we know are the people who are religious and they know about grace academically, but they don't seem a bit changed by it, right? Those are the people who are fixated on the law and following the rules. And there's this inordinate fixation on, on who did what wrong and on what they deserve, right? And I, you, you probably experience that. The same dynamic takes place in churches where grace and law are taught, but it's sort of academic. But when when it comes to the the operating system of a church, kind of use a computer term, churches kind of have operating systems. If the operating system of the church is law and rule, then you will likely have a stifling atmosphere, which is gossipy and burdensome. When you find a congregation or a church Where grace and law, they're taught. But the operating system of the church is grace. You're going to see people flourish. And you're going to see people breathe. And you're going to see people come and they're going to experience freedom. And you're also going to see a lot of sinners start showing up. And finding Jesus. And sometimes you you see gospel-centered churches as they become gospel-centered. It can create some conflict. Because the religious self-righteous people don't like it when the sinners start coming. Just look at Jesus' ministry, right? Because it's impossible to bask in the glorious grace of Jesus Christ and at the same time toot your own horn. It's impossible. The more we focus together on the gospel of Christ, the more we walk in accordance with Him and in the harmony with one another. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. Here's something else that happens. The congregation... The church becomes much more concerned about the community around it. All right. That's why, listen, one of the best things that y'all have done have been a part of this, this outreach team where we formed, you know, the whole, the forming of the, the Ramsey Park team. And see, it's just a way that we're seeking to give ourselves away to the community and to help our community. That's what it's all about. And that's, that's why I'm thankful Susan is here to come and meet with us. And, you know, that is a, I pray that that continues. Because that's a mark of a gospel centered church. I pray that that would be ever more true of us. So, here's what you can do with this. I got two, two practical things that you can do with this. Number one, saturate yourself in the gospel. Saturate yourself in the gospel. The great reformer Martin Luther has said that, that, he, uh, that he said to his people, preach, preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. And you know what? I found thats absolutely true. I need to to preach the gospel to myself every single day. My prayer, and this is why we talk about daily study the scriptures every day, that is the most powerful way we can every day allow the gospel to be preached to our souls because we need it. Because you know what I found? It won't take me but a few hours to forget the gospel. I mean, not, not forget it up here, like I can't remember what it is, but, but to forget it in my heart, right? And, and to still be self-righteous and to think it's all about me and how good I am and faithful I am. And now, See, when I get, when my heart gets to how faithful I am and how good I am and how much I'm owed and how much I deserve, you know what's really going on? I forgot the gospel. I need the gospel to be preached to me every single day. And, but when we allow that gospel to preach to us every single day, it changes our hearts. right? Number two, here's a simple question that we can ask ourselves as we're living in church world at Highland Park. What builds others up? What builds others up? I don't know about you, I've never told someone to get out of my pew. Of course, no one ever sits in my pew. It's up there behind the pulpit, so I kind of have a safety net. But you know what happens? All the time in church world, we'll have, the, we'll have something where... Someone kind of steps on our toes, right? Someone's, someone's in my spot. Someone took my idea. Someone, right? There, it doesn't take long to live in church world because we're all human. It doesn't take long before, you know, you kind of feel that. Well, how dare they? And when that creeps up, next time that creeps up, you just say, Ugh. but what builds others up? Me getting mad and me getting twisted out of shape, that, that, I think that builds me up. But you know what? What builds others up? Maybe I'll let him have that idea. Maybe maybe I ought to serve rather than demand I be served. What builds others up? Because being outward focused and focused on others and caring for our community, that's the big sign that the culture of our church is a gospel-centered culture. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is real easy for me to stand up here and to talk about it. And I pray that that wouldn't be where all this ends. I pray that you would give your Holy Spirit upon us abundantly. And that you would do a mighty work in our hearts and a mighty work in our congregation. And at the end of our story would be said of Highland Park that we were church defined by the good news of Jesus. So, Father, give each one of us and give us as a congregation as a whole the wisdom to know how we are to respond to this great word of Paul that you gave to him so many years ago. And give us then the courage to act and respond and obey. And we ask all this in Christ's good and perfect name. Amen.